Welcome to the Northbound Wealth Podcast. All opinions expressed by me, my co-hosts, or my guests are solely our own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Northbound Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended as personalized recommendations or fiduciary advice. It is not intended to provide and should not be relied upon for any investment, accounting, legal, and tax advice or as a solicitation to offer or buy any securities. Clients of Northbound Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Hey everybody, this is Brent Foster, Northbound Wealth Management Weekly Market Insights, and this is the 42nd episode of the Northbound Wealth Podcast, and I'm your host, Brent Foster. Here we go. Let's review last week and dive into some other timely topics. Hopefully you'll find this educational and very informative, maybe even entertaining. Stocks rallied last week propelled by growing optimism over reaching a deal on raising the debt ceiling and avoiding a technical debt default by the U.S. The Dow Jones Industrial Average gained 0.38% higher, while the S&P 500 gained 1.65%. The Nasdaq advanced 3.04% for the week. MSCI EFA Index, which tracks developed overseas stock markets, lost 0.47%. So what does that mean for the Dow? The Dow closed at 33,426. That's up basically 0.84% for the year, 84 basis points, not quite 1%. NASDAQ closed at 12,657. That's up 20.94% for the year. By far, again, the best performing uh, index, major index out there. MSCI EFA Index closed at 2116. Uh, that's up 8.87% for the year. And the S&P 500 closed at 4,191 and change. That's up 9.18% for the year. The 10-year treasury note closed up and at uh, 3.70%. Uh, that's 0.18% to the downside on the year. So pretty much flat on the year. So the possible debt deal after stumbling on weak April retail sales and a combination of disappointing earnings and weak guidance from major retailers. Stocks moved higher midweek as the news on the debt negotiations turned positive. The prospect of an agreement to lift a cloud of uncertainty that has weighed on markets in recent weeks and sparked sufficient optimism to shake off comments by the Dallas Fed president, who indicated that economic data may not support a pause in rate hikes yet aiding the market's upbeat mood was a positive update on deposit growth at a troubled regional bank. Stocks surrendered some of the week's gains on Friday following reports of an impasse on debt talks and comments by Fed Chair Powell. Housing data is mixed. Recent updates have suggested that the housing market may be staging a turnaround after a long period of contraction. Last week's data contained some fresh evidence of revival and caution that any potential recovery may remain further out. The first positive sign was an increase in home builder sentiment that put the National Association of Home Builders Housing Market Index confidence level at a midpoint for the first time since July 2022. An unexpected 2.2% rise in housing starts in April followed. These encouraging reports, however, were followed by a disappointing 3.4% decline in April existing home sales. So this week, key economic data. Tuesday, Purchasing Managers Index, or PMI, composite in new home sales data. Wednesday, the FOMC meeting minutes. Thursday, GDP or gross domestic product uh, and jobless claims. And then Friday, consumer sentiment, personal income and outlays, durable goods orders. 
So this week, notable companies reporting earnings. Uh, Monday, Zoom. Tuesday, Lowe's, Palo Alto Networks, AutoZone, and Intuit. Wednesday, NVIDIA, Analog Devices, and Snowflake. Thursday, Costco Corporation, Marvell, and uh, Workday. There was some news today, too, that Micron uh, Semiconductors uh, is is basically being investigated or banned from selling into China. That's uh, that's quite a development and uh, quite a move by the uh, Xi Jinping over in China to do that. That represents about 13% of Micron's revenue. And, and so that's why Micron was down in the open pre-market trading hours, uh, nearly 6% this morning. So those of you who track and follow Micron. So here's our tax tip for the week, taking a side gig. Here's how it may affect your taxes. Taxpayers who work in the gig economy may benefit from having a better understanding of how their work affects their taxes. People involved in the gig economy earn income as freelancers, independent workers, or employees. They use technology to provide goods or services, including renting out a home or a spare bedroom or providing car rides. Here are some things taxpayers should know about the gig economy and taxes. Money earned through this work may be taxable. Tax implications exist for the company providing the platform and the individual performing the services. This income may be taxable even if the taxpayer providing the service doesn't receive a Form 1099 miscellaneous or Form 1099-K or Form W-2. This income may also be taxable if the activity is only part-time side work or if you're paid in cash. Uh, this information is not intended as a substitute for specific individualized tax advice. We suggest you discuss your specific tax issues with a qualified tax professional. This tip was adapted from iris.gov. All right, on to the next segment. Hey, everybody. There's an old saying that, uh, that goes like this. Uh, close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. In this case, we're close to technically being in a bull market, but not but not quite. We're not quite there yet. As stock prices rise, investors can start to feel pressure to join the rally, but it's important to stick to your own personal investment strategy and do not move in and out of the market due to a feeling or a positive headline. It's been a quiet rally, right? So that being said, I'm going to post uh, this to the blog. And that is, what is a bull market? Good question. And more importantly, who determines if we're in one? It's another good question. So technically speaking, a bull market is defined as a 20% gain in, in the stock market index, such as the S&P 500, from a closing low. So are we in one? Technically, we're not. The S&P 500 hit a low of 3,583 on October 10th, 2022. So a 20% gain would put the S&P 500 at right about... 4,300. As you can see from the uh, a chart on the blog, the S&P 500 is still below that level. So the accompanying chart also shows how, a cha uh, how challenging the stock market has been since October 2022. When stock prices rally higher, those gains are often met by selling pressure. So it's easy to understand that it's been a difficult period to remain focused as an investor. It's also a period that reminds us how important it is to tune out the noise and focus on what you can't control, like your time horizon, your risk tolerance, and your goals. So let me know if you need any help turning down the bear volume or the perma bear volume you might be hearing out there in the news media. 
In this segment, we're going to talk about living trusts, understanding the basics and key considerations. Estate management can be a complex and daunting task for many people, but it's a critical step in helping your assets get managed and distributed according to your wishes. One popular tool that can be used in estate strategies is a living trust. A living trust can provide a flexible and efficient way to manage assets during your lifetime and after your death. But it's important to understand how it works and whether or not it's the right choice for your individual circumstances. Using a living trust or any other type of trust involves a complex set of tax rules and regulations. Before moving forward with a trust, consider working with a professional who is familiar with these rules and regulations. In this segment, we'll dive into the details of living trusts, including how they differ from other types of trusts, what their benefits and limitations are, and how they can play a role in your overall estate strategy. Whether you're just starting to consider estate tools or looking for ways to optimize your current approach, this segment is designed to provide insights to help you make more informed decisions. So first of all, what is a living trust? A living trust, which can either be revocable or irrevocable, is a legal agreement in which you transfer ownership of your assets into the trust while maintaining control over them. The trust becomes the owner of the assets and you can be the trustee or choose someone else to manage the trust during your lifetime. Please be aware that a living trust is different from a living will. A living trust is not the same as a living will. A living will is a directive written by you that details how you prefer to receive medical treatment if you become incapacitated or lose the ability to communicate. Does a living trust supplement or replace a will and why? That's a good question. A living trust can supplement a will, but it may not entirely replace the need for a will. A living trust offers a way to manage your assets while you're alive and after your death. But there are some assets you may not wish to place in a trust, such as automobiles or jewelry. With a living trust, you control how your assets are distributed after your death without going through probate court, which can be time consuming and costly. What are some other benefits of a living trust? Here are a few key benefits to consider. Number one, privacy. Unlike a will, a living trust is not a public document. This means that the details of the trust and its assets can remain private. Number two, flexibility. A revocable living trust can be modified or changed by the grantor during their lifetime, allowing for flexibility in estate management. And number three, preparing for incapacity. A living trust in combination with other estate documents can provide instructions for the management of assets in the event that the grantor becomes incapacitated. There are a few limitations to consider as well. Number one, complex and timely. A living trust can be more difficult to set up compared with other estate documents. Number two, guardianship of children. A living trust cannot designate guardianship for minors. Number three, taxes and creditors. A living trust is limited regarding the tax benefits it can provide and the protection it offers against creditors. So what is the difference between a living or revocable trust and an irrevocable trust? The main difference between revocable and irrevocable trust is simply that the revocable trust can be modified or revoked by the grantor during their lifetime, while an irrevocable trust cannot. 
An irrevocable trust is typically used for more complex estate situations, such as tax management purposes. Keep in mind that revocable trusts are commonly referred to as simply living trusts. What assets can you put into a living trust? Anything you own that has value can be added to a living trust, including real estate, personal property, and financial accounts. However, the grantor may choose to keep certain assets out of the living trust. Assets may be assigned to a living trust to be covered by its terms. This means that they are retitled to indicate ownership by the trust. The types of assets that can fund a trust include real estate, land, commercial property, homes, personal property like jewelry, artwork, antiques, cars, closely held business interests, and financial accounts like checking and savings accounts, certificates of deposit, investment accounts. After you die, your life insurance proceeds can also flow to your trust if you named it as a beneficiary. So when considering establishing a living trust, it is important to keep a few considerations in mind. Um, one of those is responsibility. You must choose a trustee or co-trustee carefully, obviously. This is a major responsibility. Make sure whomever you name is willing and able to fulfill your wishes as stated in the trust. And then ongoing maintenance. So a living trust must be maintained and managed over time to account for life events and changes in the assets. Reviewing a revocable trust periodically and keeping it up to date may help avoid problems down the road. So how does it play a role in estate management? A living trust can play a crucial role in estate management by providing a way to manage assets during a person's lifetime and after their death. It can also provide flexibility in estate strategies and help avoid probate courts, saving time and money for beneficiaries. So in conclusion, deciding whether to establish a living trust or any other type of trust is best done by working with an estate attorney and any other professional who understands your personal finances. Seek guidance before determining the best strategy for you as your needs can vary depending on your individual circumstances and goals. If you want to learn more about how trusts can be used in estate strategies, please contact our office. We might have some additional information or illustrations that we can show you how trust can be structured. So hopefully you found this segment informative and stay tuned for the next segment. Hey everybody, this is Brent Foster, Northbound Wealth Management. And this is Technical Analysis Spotlight and some other comments on the market. And I recently had a conversation with uh, someone I respect and value quite a bit to somebody over at JP Morgan. Uh, and uh, we were talking about um, uh, when to add duration to portfolios and fixed income. And, and frankly, uh, if we get a backup in, in interest rates, meaning a decline in interest rates, it's a good time to own bonds because you're going to make money on bonds as uh, interest rates go down, uh, bond prices go up. So uh, that there's a direct relationship there. So uh, right now, it's really uh, the probably the time if you if your thesis is that we're at peak interest rates uh, on the yield curve on the short end, especially you can extend duration and get 
quite a bit of alpha out of it over the coming, say, 12 months as the Fed pauses and uh, lowers interest rates. So uh, from a strategy standpoint on, on the fixed income side of the ledger, I'm looking at extending duration and making some money uh, over the coming years by clipping that nice higher coupon, uh, what would be expected a higher coupon over a longer period of time while making uh, some alpha or some some uh, return, extra return on uh, interest rates as they decline. So over the next several years, uh, that's under the assumption that interest rates are going to continue to maybe come down rather than go up. But recently we've had uh, interest rates go up. It's a good opportunity as fixed income or treasuries on the short end of the yield curve roll off, uh, that's the time to be adding duration um, and trying to get a little bit longer uh, if your assumption is interest rates are going down here uh, in the near term and, and over the next maybe one to three to five years. So I'm looking at managing the yield curve that way and trying to take advantage of that. And I agreed with that gentleman. Great, uh, great call. It's just a uh, when to pull the trigger on that trade. And, and I wrote to him and I said, I just simply said, price trumps time and the execution of and or for pulling the trigger is a fascinating exercise to discuss as the ownership of it requires an in-depth analysis from many disciplines. The culmination of which is greed begets fear or maybe better said opportunity outweighs risk given the portfolio objectives or parameters. Some may never be able to do it effectively or efficiently, and they will not be in the position long, or they will humble themselves and make adjustments to correct mistakes as they will learn from poor execution and make better decisions that keep them in the proverbial seat. Nevertheless, skill on price and time takes time, obviously through experience. Yet we are in the business too and should have the skill to execute and make money for clients most of the time, never all the time though. Uh, and I said that I agree that duration should be added and will uh, will be in portfolios very soon. There is a big opportunity there to add duration if the Fed lowers rates. When, when I do uh, make those trades, I'll uh, drop tickets in uh, certain uh, exchange traded funds and or certain instruments, uh, you know, and I just shared with them what the uh, yield curve looks like and what the screen looks like on trading individual securities. And I just said, as for equities, I, I do see a retest of the lows from last year, the timing of which is a challenge. The second half of 2023 or the first quarter of 2024. For now, the tug of war between bulls and bears is being worked out. I'm watching the 4,200 to 4,300 level. And if we don't break out soon, the market will resolve to the downside. If it does uh, break up, meaning go up, uh, then we watch to see at what level, say 4,500 to 4,800. But if we fail to break above all-time highs, uh, then retesting of new support needs to happen over time. The Fed could lower rates if too much technical damage is done below 4,000 as, as a proverbial quote unquote arrow in the quiver or a lever they can pull to help stabilize the market or economy. Frankly, I think they pause and then lower when there is a actual reason to. So um, that being said, what we do is a little bit of technical analysis and look at the S&P 500 and the Fibonacci retracement levels, which I've talked about before. 
And um, when I pull up a chart and take a look at those, uh, the 50-day moving average, the 200-day moving average on the uh, SPX or the S&P 500 large cap index, uh, the, that index holds the 500 largest companies in the United States. And uh, basically, I have the moving averages on there, the RSIs. Um, and, and what jumps out is uh, price movements and price patterns. So as I said earlier, price trumps time. And uh, I'm immediately drawn to the higher lows from October to December to March. And you snap a trend line in there and you take a look at what those levels look like. And so um, basically, uh, we're right at that 4,200 level and we're trying to break out and above that. And um, I'm looking at that trend and if we fail it, we roll back over kind of what I was saying. So um, when I snapped Fibonacci ratios to the chart, um, I focused on the 4,000 level as uh, the, for the fourth quarter of last year as the floor. Uh, it represents a 38.2% retracement for the 2022 range and seemed to be a likely upside target on the initial rally off of October lows. And uh, sure enough, we hit that 4,000 level in November. We spent four weeks chopping out at that price point. Then we finally saw a fall through above 4,000 in January. Uh, that opened up all the way to the 50% level around 4,155 which was reached in early February. So February highs. And I mentioned that on last week's podcast. And so for the last six weeks, we've been talking about the S&P 500 hitting 4,200 and whether it eclipses it uh, for the February high. Um, and, you know, that's the 50% retracement, FIB retracement level. Um, and getting above 4,155 was an important milestone. So if the S&P 500 does power above February's highs next week or this week or next week, um, which it seems to be um, trying to do a 61.8% retracement of the 2022 sell-off would take the S&P 500 to right around 4,310. Um, and I did mention that on a few weeks ago uh, on the technical analysis spotlight is it very well could the S and P could get to 4,300 levels. Um, and we still be in a bear market. Um, but, uh, there's a confluence of resistance there between 4,200 and 4,300, um, where traditional support and resistance analysis aligns with FIB retracement levels based on the narrow leadership in 2020 three and the anemic breath conditions persisting, which I talked about last week, uh, I would expect a move above 4,300 to be highly unlikely. Okay. So not probable. So, um, there's plenty of fib, uh, levels and confluence levels of support below if we fail to break out. So, we'd go right back down to that 4,150 to 4,100 price targets. Um, and then obviously we could drop down to 4,000 and all of those are confluences of support all the way down to the 200 day moving average would be the more major trend line. So um, there's plenty to be bullish about. Uh, from a technical perspective, but we're not quite out of the woods yet. So 
Um, we've got the debt ceiling, there's China, there's all kinds of headlines, there's interest rates and the Fed. So we're gonna continue to monitor where are the price points of the S&P 500 trade? And that's gonna tell us quite a bit and cut through a lot of the noise that's out there in the news media and the headlines. So if you have any questions about your uh, specific situation, give us a call at 317-399-1107. Again, 317-399-1107. Have a great week.